with us this morning. In my old age, I've found myself forgetting things pretty regularly. And maybe you can relate to me on that. Sometimes they're little things. I forget things like why I walked into the kitchen or why I walked into the living room. What did I walk in here for? What am I trying to do here? Why am I in this room? Sometimes I forget to take the garbage out on Tuesday mornings. And that really can be a problem, especially when you forget three or four or five weeks in a row, like I tend to do. Sometimes I forget to respond to a text or respond to an email or respond to a phone call. And depending on the person who left the text or the email or the phone call, that could be a big deal. And some people don't make it quite as big a deal. But the point is that I forget things all the time. I'm sure you forget things all the time and it can be frustrating. But sometimes we forget things that aren't just small, that aren't just trivial, that aren't just relatively meaningless in the big scheme of things, sometimes we forget things that really, really are important. Things that really, really matter. Sometimes we can be guilty of forgetting things that really we should never forget because of how important they are. In 1945, the first general election in 10 years was held in the United Kingdom. And the reason it hadn't been held in 10 years was because of World War II. And in 1945, Winston Churchill, the hero of World War II, the one who inspired the United Kingdom to never, never, never surrender in the face of Nazi Germany, the one who provided leadership, the one who provided inspiration and consistency and stability, he was running again for prime minister. Now, his approval rating had never been below 78%. And at that time, it was estimated that his approval rating was at 83% which is just unheard of in the world of politics. And so Churchill and his campaign, they looked at those numbers and they assumed that, okay, we've got this election in the bag because of the numbers, how good they are, and because of all we've done for them, all the leadership that I provided during World War II, we're going to win this by a landslide. Well, Churchill lost the campaign to Clement Attlee. And some people argue that the reason... Churchill lost the campaign is because people loved him during a military campaign. They didn't really think he was the guy for the job during a time of peace and a time of rebuilding after the war was over. Of course, Churchill was devastated by the defeat. He sank into a period of depression. And you can imagine Churchill sitting back and thinking as he lost that election, have these people forgotten everything that I just did for them? They wouldn't have gotten through World War II without me. I was the one who inspired them. I was the one who led them. I was the one who offered stability. And yet it seems just like that, his people forgot him. And he wasn't the prime minister anymore. Now, there are certainly other times in our lives that we forget somewhat important things. Maybe you've been guilty of forgetting an anniversary with a spouse, the person that you love more than anyone else on this world, the person who you have dedicated your life to, and yet you forget something that matters to them. Maybe you've forgotten how much you owe your parents to the point where you realize just how much you owe your parents for giving you life, for giving you the clothes on your back, for giving you a future, and then you realize it, and sometimes it can be too late. Maybe you forget just how much someone invested in you and built into you and how you wouldn't be where you are in your career or in your life or in your marriage if that person hadn't believed in you. The point is this, we can be guilty of forgetting things that are unimportant, 
And we can be just as guilty of forgetting things that are very important. And sometimes we don't just forget the trivial things or the things with our spouse or with our parents or with someone who believed in us or a mentor. Sometimes we can even be guilty of forgetting the significance of what Christ has done for us. Over time, we find ourselves a little bit less blown away by God's grace. We find ourselves a little bit less in awe of the cross. We find ourselves a little bit less impressed with the forgiveness that we find in Jesus. Time goes on, life changes, things come up, and we find ourselves going through routine. We find ourselves not really seeming to understand or have that passion for what Christ did for us the way we did a month ago or six months ago or a year ago or five years ago. Sometimes we're often guilty of forgetting even what Christ has done. That's why this morning, as we continue our Come to the Table series, we're going to be looking at the thing that serves as a reminder of what Christ has done. The thing that reminds us of what Christ has done for us. The thing that reminds us of what unites us as followers of Jesus, even though we're all vastly different. The thing that reminds us of our hope for the future. We're going to look at that thing that reminds us, and that thing is communion. It's something that we do here a lot. We do it here every week, and it can easily become just another part of the service or just the transition time from worship to sermon or just some empty religious ritual. But really, we want to avoid that mentality. So we're going to examine what communion is, who does communion, when communion is done, where communion is done, and finally, maybe the most important thing, why we do communion. Why do we do this every week? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verse 17. If you are using one of our Bibles, feel free to use page 709. That's the page that this will be located on. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we dig into Matthew 26, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are so often guilty of forgetting. We are so often guilty of taking for granted the things that matter in this life, the people that mean so much to us, the events that are so important and shaping us. And God, sometimes we're even guilty of forgetting what you've done for us. And God, thank you for giving us the reminder of communion. Thank you for giving us that opportunity, even if it's just a few minutes each week, to be reminded of what you've done, to be reminded of what unites us, and to be reminded of where we find our hope for the future. God, I pray that as we look through your word this morning, that we will be just restruck by the glory of what you've done for us, just left again in awe of the cross. God, we love you. We praise you. Be with us this morning as we read your word together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Start reading in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared 
the Passover. So as we read in this passage, we pick up during the last week of Jesus's life. In fact, we pick up during the last full day of Jesus's ministry. He has spent three years building into these disciples. He's done miracles. He's had all kinds of teaching opportunities. He's fed people who were hungry. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's given hope to the hopeless. He's given headaches to the religious leaders who thought they had it all figured out. And then we see this day, the last full day before Jesus's crucifixion. And it's about that time of year where the disciples start asking Jesus, now, Jesus, we are going to do Passover this year, right? I mean, we have always done Passover in the past. That's what we do as God's people. Where are we going to do it tonight? It's that time. It's Passover time. So Jesus tells them, go ahead. There's a room in Jerusalem. I know a guy there. Just tell him these words and he'll have things ready for us. So the disciples do just that as they get ready for Passover. Now, two weeks ago, we spent an entire sermon on the Passover. Just a quick reminder of what the Passover was. In Exodus, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. And God uses plagues to get Pharaoh's attention, nine of them to be exact. And the first nine don't really seem to work all that well. Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. But then there comes a final plague. But before this final plague occurs, God tells his people to have a meal. Specifically, to have a meal that would consist of bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery, to have a meal that consisted of unleavened bread because they didn't have time to wait around for dough to rise. They had to get ready to move because something big was about to happen. And the meal would consist of roasted lamb. Meal doesn't sound that bad. But then the Israelites were told to spread the blood of this lamb, the one that they cook, on the doorposts of their homes. And that this lamb's blood would mark them apart and would set them apart and that they would be saved from punishment. They would be saved from the coming horror and plague by the lamb's blood on their doorposts. And sure enough, just like God said he would, God comes through. The plague happens. The firstborn of every home in Egypt without the blood of the lamb on the doors is killed. There is weeping, there is mourning, and Pharaoh finally gives in and says, you know what? Just leave. Just get out of here. Take your stuff, take your people, take your God. Just leave us alone. And the Israelites are delivered. Now, there was one last attempt by Pharaoh to try and drag them back into slavery, but God delivers them from that at the Red Sea. And God tells them, people, don't ever forget what I've done for you. In fact, that meal that you had the night before that last plague, take that meal and practice it over and over and over. Reenact that meal every single year because I don't ever want you to forget the deliverance that I've given you. So from this point forward, have the Passover. Never forget what it symbolizes. And they did that all the way up to this passage, to the time of Jesus, generations later. God's people are still taking the Passover. Now, in verses 20 through 25, we see a conversation where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he basically tells them that he's going to be betrayed. And the disciples are confused. They don't really know what this means. They don't know who's going to do it. But Jesus knows exactly who's going to do it. Judas has put a plan in place. He's going to betray Jesus for some money. And then Jesus gets into the meal. 
Look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So this is where we get into the first question of communion. What exactly is communion? What is it all about? What does it mean? Well, it starts with the Passover. Jesus takes this traditional Passover meal, the way it had always been done, the way the disciples thought it would be a normal, traditional Passover meal, and he changes things up a little bit. He takes the unleavened bread and he breaks it and says, you know what? This is no longer about waiting around for dough to rise. This is about my body broken for you. He takes a cup of wine and says that this is his blood poured out for them. And that phrase poured out would imply a violent, a gruesome type of death, the death of judgment, a death of punishment, a death of wrath that Jesus would suffer. He tells the disciples to eat the bread and drink the blood because this is the blood of a new covenant, a covenant which will bring about the forgiveness of sins. And then he says this will be the last meal that he will eat with them until he is with them in God's kingdom. Now, you can imagine the disciples are hearing all of this. They thought this was going to be a regular old meal. And Jesus is saying all these crazy new things. And they probably feel like they're drinking from a fire hose trying to absorb everything that Jesus is saying here, because Jesus is doing something really, really big. And Jesus is doing something that's really, really audacious. Jesus is taking the Passover, this meal that had been initiated generations earlier, that God initiated, that would serve as a reminder of the greatest thing that God had ever done for his people. And Jesus is taking this meal and saying, yeah, guys, it's about me now. Yeah, I know you've practiced it for a long time. I know it's important. I know what it meant in the past. But this meal, eh, it's about me now. Wow, that's a pretty bold claim to make. Who would have the audacity and who would have the authority to take this God-ordained meal and say, from now on, it's all about me? The Son of God would have that audacity. The Son of God has that authority the ultimate eternal deliverer, the one who offers deliverance that is way bigger from deliverance in Egypt, the one who offers deliverance from sin and death itself. So what is communion? At its core, communion is Jesus hijacking the Passover meal, celebrated to remember this deliverance way back in the past and telling them from now on, remember the deliverance that I'm about to give you. Remember my body that's about to be broken for you. Remember my blood that is about to be poured out for you. Because the deliverance that I'm bringing about is way, way, way bigger than any deliverance that you've ever seen before. And the deliverance that I'm bringing, that's the one that you should never forget. So that's what communion is. Now we get into the question of who practices communion. We see a little bit about what it means. But who does it? Do we have rules about who does communion at Prairie View? Are there certain people who can do it and certain people who can't do it? Well, for that, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 
In that passage, we read about the early church, this church that is just now getting its feet wet, just kind of starting to form. Jesus has been ascended to be with God. He's now reigning at God's right hand. He's not hanging around anymore after the resurrection. And the disciples are trying to grasp what exactly is coming next. The Holy Spirit has come. These crazy things have happened in Acts chapter 2. And then we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread, we assume, would refer to communion. So who exactly does communion according to this passage? Well, it's people who are dedicated to the apostles' teaching, people who are dedicated to fellowship, being together, and people who are dedicated to prayer. So the short answer of who practices communion, believers practice communion. That's simple. And here at Prairie View, when we take communion each week, we ask the same thing, that believers be the only ones who take communion. We don't say you have to be a member of this church. We don't say you have to be a member of some certain denomination. We don't say you have to come here a certain number of times to be eligible for communion. We don't make you go through some kind of class to prove that you're worthy of communion. We just ask that if you take communion, you be a believer. That you be a believer in Jesus as Lord. That you be a believer in Jesus as Savior. And ultimately, that question of, am I a believer or am I not, that's a question between you and God. As far as our concern is, we just make communion available. And believers are welcome to take it. We can't stop anyone from taking it. We're not going to force you to not take it. But we ask that you be a believer. So what communion is, it's Jesus showing that he is the ultimate deliverer. Who takes communion? Believers in Jesus, that he is the ultimate deliverer. Those are the people that take communion. And now we get to the third question, when do we take communion? And this is one where churches differ. This is one where Christians have different opinions about when communion should be taken. That being said, there are passages like Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where Paul says something about being gathered together on the first day of the week, and that's when they break bread. We read passages like that. We read other things throughout church history, other sources that seem to indicate that communion is a weekly thing. And so we decide that we as a church are going to take communion weekly. That's the best that we know. That's what we believe all indications are in the New Testament, that it was something they did each week. And so we try to emulate the same thing. Now, again, some churches differ on this. Some churches take communion weekly. Some churches take communion quarterly. Some churches take it a little bit more or a little bit less than that. And that's all well and good. And some people prefer one or the other. But this is the way that we choose to do it. Now, I grew up in a church tradition where we practiced it quarterly, and at that, it was always pushed off to Sunday night, the service that nobody went to. That's when communion happened. And as I grew up, it was totally common to go months or even a year without communion because it just wasn't really all that important in the church that I grew up in. And personally, as I've been in churches that have taken communion weekly, I've found a new appreciation for communion. I know some people hear the idea of communion being weekly and they're scared and they think that, well, if I take it weekly, what if I take it for granted? Or what if it just becomes a routine? Or what if it loses significance if we do it every single week? And let me tell you, from my personal experience at least, I found a new appreciation for communion by doing it weekly. 
We believe at Prairie View that having communion weekly doesn't trivialize it. It actually elevates it because we believe the New Testament church viewed it with that much respect and that we take Jesus's command to take communion together very, very seriously. And so we do it week in and week out. So again, if you're new to Prairie View and you're really not quite sure how you feel about taking communion yet, we ask that you keep an open mind. We ask that you keep an open mind that it won't be trivialized. We ask that you keep an open mind that it could just elevate communion and that you could realize that communion is a little bit more important than many churches out there sometimes seem to act like it is. So what is communion? Jesus announcing himself as the true believer. Deliverer, rather. Of course he's a believer. He's Jesus. I think he believes in himself. But Jesus announcing himself as the true deliverer. Who takes communion? Believers take communion. When do we take communion? We take communion weekly because that's the best that we can seem to gather from what we have in the New Testament. And now we get to number four. And this is a short one, so bear with me. The short answer is, where do we take communion? The short answer for that is, wherever believers are gathered. We don't have to be in this room to take communion. We don't have to be in this building to take communion. There's nothing in this room that somehow authorizes communion to be taken here, but we can't take it out of here. That's not what we practice. We believe that communion can be taken anywhere where believers are gathering. That could be in a hospital room. That could be in a living room. That could be in a park where believers are gathered together where they're worshiping on the first day of the week, communion can be taken. The church is not a building. The church is people, God's people, gathering together. And so that's when communion and where communion can and should be taken. Now, this is the last one. This is maybe the most important one. So if you leave with anything, forget everything I've said so far and focus on this last part. The fifth question, why? Do we take communion? We know what it is. We know who does it. We know when it's done. We know where it's done. But why is it done? What's the big deal about communion? What's the big deal about practicing this meal that is just a little bit of juice and a little bit of bread? Is it really all that important? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul writes there, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this passage, Paul sums up what we've already read in Matthew 26. He sums up Jesus telling his disciples to take communion, his body broken, his blood shed, all that stuff. But here we see Paul hitting on something. We see Paul hitting on the idea why we take communion why he's giving this command to the Corinthian believers, why he thinks this is worth mentioning, why this is such a big deal. And there's three big points as to why we take communion. Point number one, 
we take communion to remember what Christ has done for us. It's that simple. We remember his body broken. We remember his blood poured out. We remember the pain. We remember the suffering. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus voluntarily put himself into for you and for me. We remember that Jesus went to the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve, even though he was sinless and he was perfect. And even though so many people rejected him and will continue to reject him in the future, Jesus goes to the cross and takes that punishment upon himself, pays the debt that we could not pay. So point number two, we take communion to remind us what unites us. As believers, we take communion to remember what Christ has done. We take communion to remember what brings us together. Now, this is a reminder that we are a family, believe it or not. We come from different places. We come from different backgrounds. We have different opinions. You name it. But as we take communion together on a Sunday morning in this room as a gathering of believers, we're reminded that we are a family. And we remember that we are united, no matter what else we might not have in common. And ultimately, communion reminds us that in the big scheme of things, we're all on the same playing field when it comes to being dependent upon God's grace and being an incredible, eternal need of forgiveness that only Christ can offer. Communion reminds us of that, no matter how else we may be different. Now, the Corinthians, they had problems in their church. They had a lot of different people. They were a diverse church, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different interests and concerns. And that led to issues with unity. There were divisions in that church. There were people who didn't get along. There were the poor who were being neglected. There were the rich who were gorging themselves and neglecting the poor. There were all kinds of disagreements and all kinds of division. And yet Paul writes to them and says, do not forget that when you take communion, you are a family. No matter what else is going on, no matter what kind of grudges you might hold, no matter what kind of different opinions you have, if you take communion, you have Christ in common. And to be a family of God's people, to call yourself a church, that's really the only thing you need to have in common. A dependence upon Christ and an understanding that apart from Christ, none of us have any hope. Only through Christ do we find grace. So whether you're white or black, Republican or Democrat, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, communion reminds us that we are one in Christ Jesus, no matter what differences we may have. So we take communion to remember what Christ has done. We take communion to remember our unity. And we take communion, thirdly, to remember our future hope. In that last verse of the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, Paul says that when you take the bread and drink the cup, you, re- you proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Communion reminds us that things did not end at the cross. Things didn't even end at the resurrection. One day Jesus will return and we as his followers, we're called to anxiously look forward to that. We're called to long for that day 
We're called to look forward to when Christ will return in power and in glory and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what communion is about. We forget a lot of things. Some are trivial. Some are important. But communion challenges us. And God in his grace gives communion to us that we might never forget what Christ has done. That we might never forget what brings us together. That we might never forget our hope for the future. Look at Psalm 105, verses 1 through 6. The last passage we're going to look at this morning. The psalmist writes there, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. The psalmist who wrote that, this is way before the cross. This is way before the resurrection. This is way before the ascension. And yet the psalmist says, think about everything that God has done. Praise him. Remember him. Never forget him. Now we, as people who have seen the cross, people who read about the cross and the pages of scripture, people who are aware of what Jesus has done for us, how much more so? Should we remember the wondrous works that God has done? In the Old Testament, there is story after story of the chaos that ensues when God's people forget what he has done for them. When God's people take for granted what he has done. Communion helps us remember what Christ has done, that we might not take it for granted. There's a hymn I'm going to read really quickly, and it hits on all three points that we just talked about of why we remember communion. I'll go through them one by one. The hymn starts with, I come with joy to meet my Lord, forgiven, loved, and free, in awe and wonder to recall his life laid down for me. That's point number one, what Christ has done. As Christ breaks bread and bids us share, each proud division ends. The love that made us makes us one, and strangers now are friends. That's point number two. Communion unites us. And thus with joy we meet our Lord, his presence always near. As in such friendship better known, we see and praise him here. Together met, together bound, we'll go our different ways. And as his people in the world, we'll live and speak his praise. That's point number three. We remember what Christ has done. We remember what unites us. And we remember our source for future hope that we might live and speak his praise every single day, looking forward to the return, looking forward to our hope, looking forward to the kingdom, and never forgetting what God has done. Now, there's no better way to end this sermon than by taking communion together. So like normal, Mark and the rest of the worship band, they're going to come up here, and they're going to play a song. And when we're done with the words... 
that's when the people who pass out communion will come down the aisles. They'll pass out communion row by row. Again, if you are a believer in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are welcome to take communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. If you're a believer, we ask that you take communion. But the only thing we're going to do a little bit differently as we take communion is that we're going to focus on those three things. We're going to remember what Christ has done for us. Okay, we probably do that a lot anyway. We're going to remember what unites us. And so you don't have to do it, but I would encourage you to take communion with someone else. Take communion with a family member. Take communion with a friend. Take communion with the person in the row in front of you or behind you, whatever that looks like. Take communion with someone else that we might really, really show that communion actually does unite us and bring us together as a church. And then finally, we ask that you remember the future hope that communion offers, that you remember the hope that we have as Jesus returns. So again, they'll play one song. The servers will come down. We'll take a little bit longer for communion this morning, just another minute or so, so that you can pray together, talk together, whatever it is that you want to do, and then we'll finish out our service. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you give us reminders like communion. We are grateful that in your grace, you don't leave us on our own to remember what you've done. That you give us these markers. You give us these times to set apart, these things that we do, that we might never forget what you've done for us. God, I pray that as we take communion together that we'll leave in awe of the things that we may already know But God, I pray that just because we know what Christ has done, just because we know what the cross means, just because we know that we have hope, I pray that we won't be a little bit less blown away by that, that we'll still be in awe of that, that we'll still be humbled by that. So God, be with us this morning as we take communion and be with us as we leave this place that we might live and speak your praise to anyone and everyone around us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.